Hi, this is Rob Long, one of the founders of Ricochet.com. The podcast you're about to listen to is a production of Ricochet.com, the home of center-right conversation about politics and culture on the web. If you've been listening to these podcasts for a while, you've probably heard about our site. Maybe you've even visited once or twice. Well, now I'm about to make you a special offer to join our growing community of civil and clever conversationalists and interact with contributors such as myself and Peter Robinson, John Yu, Pat Sajak, Mark and Molly Hemingway, Mona Charon, Jane Nordlinger, Paul Ray, James Lilix, Troy Senek, James Pathakoukas, Judith Levy, Arthur Davis, James Dellingpole, and many, many more. I know I'm leaving somebody out, but conservatives are very polite and they won't complain. Now, in addition, you can create your own post on our vibrant and lively and widely read in the Corridors of Power member feed on any topic you like, culture, politics, sports, food, you name it. Interact with like-minded conservatives from around the country and across the world. Listen to our podcast being recorded live and live chat with your fellow members and even attend in-person meetups across the country. And it's quite simply the best community on the web and the most fun you can have with a keyboard. And trust me, this is a community getting more influential every day. So join Ricochet today and get a free 30-day membership. Go to ricochet.com slash offer now. That's ricochet.com slash offer and claim your free 30-day membership on me. And now on with the podcast and I'll see you in the comments on Ricochet. This week, Glop Culture is sponsored by Encounter Books. This week's pick is Fred Siegel's The Revolt Against the Masses, How Liberalism Has Undermined the Middle Class. For 15% off this or any title, use the coupon code RICOCHET at checkout. We'll be talking more about this later in the show. And this show is, of course, Glop Culture, the Jonah Goldberg, Rob Long, John Pudhortz podcast. I'm John Pudhortz with Rob Long in Venice, California. Hi, Rob. 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 Oh, I'm, you know, I have the little mute, little, little he's, mute he, you thing know, because he's doing his email. He's clearing out his I was, inbox. I so was doing that on. earlier before the beginning of the podcast. Yes. And then, then I didn't do it. And, and, it was, and I was, uh, and, and I just didn't turn it off. I'm fine. John, how are you? I'm delighted. And Jonah Goldberg yes, in Washington, how are you? I am here. I am, I am not looking at my email right this second. That is, uh, you know, I no, guess I, I wasn't looking at. It. I was clearing. Rob, just you know, read us. Just read us like any random, you know, email. Yeah. What What is a movie mogul like or a TV mogul <laughs> like you? What does your email look like? It's mostly stuff. Here's what I get. Had to get. Had to get rid of. I have to get rid of stuff from because I do this uh, the three minute radio commentary um, uh, at the local uh, NPR station here, KCRW, and I'm on there for some reason. I'm on their email tree. Even though I never ever get email from there, but for the, but my email address there sends to my normal address, so I get every I have three I have a three minute commentary, all right. But because I'm on some email list, I get uh, pitched for my show, like my quote show. Yes, uh, these fantastic, ridiculous PR, PR. You know, um, uh, here's a fun idea for a martini shot segment. Uh, we did a survey for Valentine's Day. How much cleavage is too much? That's one thing I just erased. Um, have, <laughs> our, know, have our have our sexy dress consultant. Well, you know that's better. That's better than what I get. That's better than what I get in my PR email, which which is, for example, right now, 
Special comment from Rabbi Amiel Hirsch on Soda Stream. <laughs> That's what I get. That's what you get when you edit a Jewish yeah. magazine okay. is special comments from Rabbi Hirsch. Now, um, gentlemen, because we've been we've spent the first minute and a half boring everybody to death, let's get right to the uh, child molestation and drug abuse section of the uh, of the show. Um, because of course we have the the two major uh, scandal horror shock stories of the week, uh, the uh, surprising and horrible death of uh, the great actor Philip Seymour Hoffman at the age of forty six from a heroin overdose after twenty three years of sobriety and uh, drug freeness, and of course the uh, torrent of co- charges and counter charges in the case of. Uh, Woody Allen, his uh, ex-consort Mia Farrow, her stepdaughter, now her adopted daughter, now his wife, Sunyi, and their adopted daughter, now then as now uh, a claimant of child molestation by Woody uh, Dillon, who actually goes by another name, one brother uh, of Dylan supports this claim. That is uh, Ronan Farrow, soon to be a star of MSNBC. One brother, Moses Farrow, now a child psychologist, says the claim is false. Uh, she wrote something, he wrote something, and here we are back again in 1991, everybody. So, um, you know, the last time we were discussing this, the Berlin Wall had just fallen. We had uh, beaten uh, Iraq in a war, and... Uh, and I think uh, Nirvana was just about uh-huh. to break big. So, you know, everything old is new again. Um, how how do you guys feel uh, about the uh, level of attention paid to both of these stories, to Hoffman and to, and to Alan? Oh, I mean, I, I think it's – I hate to say it. We're being unfair to the heroin addict. <laughs> but you know, really, we should we should be paying more attention to the heroin addict. You know, uh, there's at least a little bit of an apples and oranges problem, right? Because I mean, Seymourville Hoffman was such a fantastic actor, and this was such a tragic, terrible thing. And look, I'm not, you know, as as you guys know, I have some experience with some of these types of issues. Um, uh, my brother died prematurely because of his demons as well. And, um, and so I, you know, <clears throat> I have nothing but criticism for Philip Seymour Hoffman, but his sins were, you know, he paid a very heavy price for his sins and, um, and they weren't exactly victimless, but they're different than pedophilia, <laughs> um, incestuous <laughs> yeah. pedophilia. Um, or, I mean, or let us say, let us say the charge. Yeah, oh, the charge of incestuous. Well, yes, uh, yeah, the charge of incestuous pedophilia is not. Uh, no, that's that's kind of different. I mean, you, you you can't be guilty of being charged of pedophilia. That's correct. That's not. A, that's I mean, not you a can't sin. be guilty of it. You can be factually Hoffman, charged yeah. with it. Hoffman's which, guilty. by the way, again, again, he legally he never was. He was never charged with an offense. Yeah. Against. Dylan and he says, he, and he, says he didn't do it. He says he didn't do it. I guess that's what uh, that's what you say. A team though, of that... psychologists at Yale said he didn't do it. The judge in their custody battle. Well, the judge in their custody. Well, based on the examinations and whatever, the judge in the custody battle said uh, there was some evidence or there were claims that his before they broke up that that his behavior toward her 
was um, inappropriate, that he was um, paid her excessive attention, ignored the other children, uh, you know, um, held her and 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 handled her in such a way as to potentially be ambiguously sexual. And to be honest, his defense of himself, published in the New York Times over the weekend, is dreadful. I mean, it is for somebody who is a celebrated writer and multiple Oscar winner and multiple yeah. bestseller writer and essayist and 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 all around sage. He made the worst public accounting of himself of anybody uh-huh. I've ever seen. This long piece is full of rage and anger and hostility at Mia Farrow and the children who have thrown the charges. And it's full of weird ad hominem claims, um, including the fact that you know he gets all high and mighty and outraged at the fact that Mia Farrow might have been – uh, two-timing him while they were together when we know that he two-timed her with her daughter who was oh, that, a teenager now? at the time. <laughs> so, for him, so for him to say at some point in this letter, what kind of a person does this? This is in, this is in response to the kind of uh, leering joke that Mia Farrow and Ronan Farrow both have made about whether or not he might be her ex-husband Frank Sinatra's love child. Um, which, which they he probably which, is. I mean, you look at him. He looks he very looks much like Sinatra. That's right. But you know, look. If Mia Farrow, uh, if you think that Woody Allen, that the only time Woody Allen stepped out on Mia Farrow, to whom he was neither engaged nor married nor lived with, was with Sunir Previn, I got another. You know, I got a. I got a. Uh, you know, a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. So. Um, you know the well, notion that he should get all outraged at her immoral well, behavior. Wait, but, he, but yeah, but he's allowed to be outraged. If, if, if I mean, being outraged that at those accusations seems like the right the right attitude. Outraged <laughs> by the accusations, but not by the but not by the notion that you know how if you think you're supposed to listen to a woman who might have you know had had sex oh. with Frank Sinatra. I mean, really, I mean, <laughs> what kind of person does that? Uh, that would silence a very large swath of middle of late middle aged women. I have met I have <laughs> met well I have met Angie Dickinson and I will tell you that she yes. seems like a very solid person. Yeah, I uh, And you listened to her. I did. Yeah, listen. Uh, meeting Angie Dickinson was one of the highlights of my career. She she was great. She, Angie Dickinson, I mean, not that we should move off of this of this this topic, but but oi, uh, yeah. I would like to sing now the Martini and Rossi song that she sang <laughs> it, with her it, husband, Bert Bachrock. Yeah. The, Martini and Rossi on the rock say yes. <laughs> Everybody remember that or am I like aging myself? Like she was married to Bert Bachrock. They did this bizarre commercial together. Yeah, we remember it. I just think that we're all just a little freaked out that you sang it. <laughs> I, uh, I, I feel I, unsafe right I, now. This yeah. is, I don't yeah, I do. I feel, I feel like Woody Allen's adopted I daughter. Feel, I do. I, <laughs> <laughs> yes, Jonah. Yes. Get in the van. <laughs> Say yes. Tell an adult you trust. Remember, I, isn't, it, isn't it more like a Roman plan? I mean, I, I, this feels to me very flashbacky to the Roman Polanski thing, right? Where oh, No Roman Polanski did it. 
That's Roman true. Polanski did it unambiguously. So the question of Roman Polanski was he claims that it was legitimate for him to flee the United States and flee justice because there a plea deal had been struck and the judge decided that the plea deal was excessively lenient and was throwing the book at him. And so he thought, okay, well, you know what? I'm not gonna. Uh, I'm not gonna. I I acknowledge that I I I I anally raped a 13 year old girl, but I'm just gonna go live in France now forever. If that's okay with you, where, where that kind of thing is celebrated. Oh, uh, please. I, I, well, I, mean, I I don't know. I mean, I think part of the problem here is that we don't know what happened, and 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 we and I don't know what the proper or the appropriate or the or the appropriate is the wrong word what the natural behavioral reaction is to this accusation is it to shut up and hope it goes away i I have a feeling that if i didn't do this and someone accused me of this i would be uh calling my lawyers and and demanding uh, i'd be suing for a hundred zillion dollars worth of libel i'd be wanting to uh i would wanting you know this is this is a serious serious crime I mean, it's hard to imagine anything worse, right? Is there I, anything look, more agree. unforgivable? So, I, so look, it's, I agree. but then I again, like, like, and again, there's a whole kangaroo court aspect of this that, uh, and 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 we, and I don't want to defend the guy because the guy seems like a real creep. So, but but you're allowed to be a creep. It's legal to do what he did, and the question is, do creeps and um and weirdos and dirty old men do they have um do they have rights in this respect? Well, of course they do, and his rights were his rights were uh, granted. You know, he was not charged with the crime. He's gone on for twenty years. He married the nineteen-year-old uh, sister of his of his uh, three adopted children. I mean, through two children yeah. and one natural, supposedly, though maybe Frank Sinatra's child, child. Right. So you know, he married his uh, he married the teenage uh, sister of his children. So you know, the fact that he is a uh, disgusting slime ball is now ha- the world has been reminded of, which I think isn't so terrible in this respect. Which is that you know he's been going along, going along, making movies, making movies, and he's like gotten back into the position of being like a grand old man of the American arts, you know, which is where he was a grand middle-aged man of the American arts. And for a long time, he made everybody very uneasy. And then he, then he made a couple of good movies after, you know, like 15 years of making terrible movies. And people were now like, Oh, he's so wonderful. And he's made blue Jasmine and he's should win an Oscar. And she and Clay Cape Blanchett should win an Oscar. He's just wonderful. He's 78 and blah, blah, blah. And so this has come along and people are saying, you know what, wait a minute, you know, just because he's industrious and he's done a lot of hard work and he's kept his head down uh, doesn't mean uh, that the world should forget that he, you know, atomized right. a family and, you know, and, and behaved uh, in the most know. appalling. Well, look, I, I think we're hoping that. I'm not, ta- I'm not, I am not talking about the abuse here. Skip the abuse. I, I know what you're talking about, but I, I, I don't think. He I, took I think, pornographic pictures of a teenager I, that I, her mother found and her mother happened to be his girlfriend. I, I, yes, I know, but I don't think that I, I, I understand. But I'm, I'm talking about where you're going with this as a conclusion, and I don't think that's what's happening. I think people have already, you know, you know, as they say, you know, that's that's, that's priced into the Woody Allen stock. I don't think any, anybody says like, "Oh, I forgot, he's a weirdo." Yeah, so here's, I mean, here's six six thousand people watch the movies. They're right. not, you know, they don't true. make any money. That's it's true. like he's but, a, you know, he's a, he's a, a, a com- we have already spent too much time talking about him. 
Okay, so let's just, okay, time. good. Well, one, last, a, one last yeah. point on this, okay? Because, like, it, um, you know, one of my favorite sort of coffee table points about these are kind of things is, you know, when the whole phrase power corrupts, um, people mis- misunderstand what, the act, what, what Acton was actually trying to say there. What he was actually talking about was that um, ap- that power corrupts the way other people view powerful people. And then he was saying that basically he was talking about historians who write about popes and they tend to forgive popes all sorts of things they would condemn in lesser men because they are popes. And um, you sort of see the same thing in so many of these things. You saw it with the Roman Polanski. I remember watching on HBO there was this uh, – they did that the sort of documentary profile thing about Jerry Weintraub, which was actually pretty interesting and he seems like an interesting guy. But it was really funny when they got to his marital life, where apparently he's been married to the same woman for a very long time, but he basically spends all of his time with his girlfriend, and everyone is okay with it. And it was really interesting to see Julia Roberts and George Clooney and all these people sort of explain away why it's not my business, I don't care, you know, um, it's, isn't it so funny? That's just how Jerry is. And that's how his wife is and his girlfriend. And they're just, you know, they're okay with it. So who cares? And, and to me, it's sort of the same thing with Woody Allen and with a lot of these people. It was the same thing with, with Michael Jackson. One of the reasons why, you know, his life ended the way it did. And it probably explains a lot about Philip Seymour Hoffman is that powerful, famous, influential people, people stop judging the same way you would judge your accountant or your business partner or your friends and they don't do interventions and they give these essentially dispensations to these people. And so I mean, I agree with John. I think Woody Allen is indisputably a scummy, weird dude who I wouldn't let obviously babysit my kid. Um, and I, I think that, you know, but that yet people who have a, a vested or a social or an ideological interest in not saying that and they get themselves bent out of, shape in order to come up with some other theory of the case and so he may not be guilty of of the pedophilia thing but the 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 ship has sailed on him being a good guy um and i sort of i find it entertaining to watch a lot of people in hollywood bend over backwards as the way to rationalize how um they the, you know they 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 would never deal with someone who had this kind of lifestyle um as you know their chiropodist but since he's a director, they're like, oh, well, you got to make allowances for genius. Well, you know, speaking well, of yeah. speaking of, you know, moral behavior in Hollywood and all of that, we have the we have the, the sad news uh, just as we are as we are recording this, that um, that uh, Shirley Temple Black uh, has died at the age of 85. Um, and uh, this is of particular interest coming Two weeks after the latest meltdown of a child star in public, that is the you know the singer Justin Bieber, who you know had a had a crazy DWI in Miami, and then then you know he was supposed to check into rehab, and he drove off with his dad, and then his plane flew to Newark Airport, and they spent six hours searching it for pot, and he's clearly having one of these twenty-one-year-old, richer than God, more famous than anybody meltdowns uh, that we've seen previously with you know Lindsay Lohan and Amanda Bynes and 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 Michael Jackson and everybody, all these other uh, you know uh, young celebrities, and there was Shirley Temple Black, who actually 
was potentially headed in that direction as a teenager. She married an actor named John Agar, who was a drunk, and they drank together. He beat her up. He was he was very problematic, and she 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 got out of it. She got herself divorced. She changed her life. She had a new family. She, you know, and she led this sort of remarkable life as a yeah. as a as a as a public official, as somebody, as a, as a, you know, as a leading figure in the California Republican Party, um, as an ambassador at the UN, um, and you know, it's an interesting question: Why is it that so many of these? What what is it that her life had that Justin Bieber's life and Lindsay Lohan's life and all those other lives didn't? Because she certainly was the most famous child in the world for i don't know well you know it's weird 10 years yeah it was yeah what's strange about the child star of the past is that i mean and this is also the bad thing right uh about being a child star of the past was that you you were really like a little uh uh, um an indentured servant i mean you you did what you were told you 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 sang the songs that were written for you and you did the dances that were your dance for you no one no one um you were you were really an uh, uh, an order taker, and you didn't have that much autonomy. And you look at the people like Justin Bieber or the the, sort of the other young people now; they they seem to have a lot more power. They have a lot more control over what they do. Um, and back then you didn't. I mean, back then, in fact, this is before the um. Oh, I, no! It's just his name just just escaped me. The the, the young the the child actor who, whose parents stole all his money. Um, <coughs> <laughs> no, no, well, actually, all of them. Which one well, didn't steal? The, the, Jackie, well, the, Cooper. Jack, Jackie, Jackie Cooper. Jackie Cooper, and then the Jackie Cooper laws were, were enacted to sort of like to kind of protect um, the the child star, protect the money. Um, but then, of course, later they they spend it themselves and go crazy. But uh, you, you look back back then, and you see, see uh, even listening to what they did to Judy Garland, like when she was a child star, like what her day was like, and what her her world was like. And Patty Duke, there was this um, story that. Um, Patty Duke tells about being um, – she was a young girl. I mean she wasn't young. She was not She was not teenager. She was like older, like 18, 19, 19, 19, 20 maybe. And she was on the Patty Duke show. And uh, she was a huge star at the time and um, and she was at Chasen's. And Sinatra – speaking of Sinatra, Sinatra was there, at, not, not at her table. And they were kind of looking at each other and he was looking at her. And um, he uh, got up and uh, was walking – to, to greet some other table and he passed her table and he leaned in and he said, um, you're going to come home with me mm. or something like that. Cause you Sinatra, you could do that. And she did, but her life, there was so her life. That was so crazy. And she had no power over anything. Like someone told her what to read, what to wear every day. She was complete com- under complete control that he brought her back to his mansion somewhere. And they had a drink and she sat on the sofa and she just burst into tears, and she started crying for you know she had basically had a breakdown. And uh, he um, apparently, because he's Sinatra, was a perfect gentleman, and called his manservant in and said, uh, "Please show George, uh, <laughs> yeah, George, please show uh, Miss uh, Miss Duke to the you know the the, the guest suite to the Peter Lawford suite." And um, and then uh, you know they they put her in the guest room, and and uh, and then the next morning was a knock on the door, and. And uh, they brought her some coffee, and uh, and then and he was gone. He was already working that day, and he called her later at the, on the set, and said, uh, "Patty, it's Francis Albert. How are you doing, dear?" And then he talked to her for about an hour on the phone. 
and said, do you something? I think the advice was something like, uh, you need to take control of your day or something like that. And uh, it was a good show business advice, right? But yeah, I know. It was good. As a, there you go. I got nothing to compete with that except I want to be on record that I predicted everything that was ha- that has happened with Justin Bieber the moment we found out he had a pet monkey. <laughs> yeah. That exactly. is that yeah. is the clearest sign that your decision tree is going horribly awry <laughs> and you're going to end up wrapped around a telephone pole or, you know, um, on the run from the cops in Florida is if you have a pet monkey. We just simply know that. It's also the saddest thing in the world because you realize, oh, he's just a kid. Yeah. He's a stupid kid and he wants a pet monkey because he's probably about four years younger emotionally than he really is in his actual age. And also and- if you had the kind of money where any wish could be granted – and everyone like, around you yeah. is their job is to say yes to you. You would get a monkey, you know? <laughs> yeah. that's, and that's why you know things are going to go bad is because everyone is saying yes to everything when you get a monkey. Listen, you know, in the 1930s, and monkeys 19- are scary, by the way. Um, uh, they should have said no to the monkey. Absolutely. But listen, you know, there there is this uh, this legendary uh, du- duo at, uh, at at MGM in the twenties, thirties, and forties. Uh, Strickling and Mannix were their names, and one was nominally the head of publicity, and one was nominally the head of production, or something like that. Um, but it was their job to keep bad news out of the press and to handle the personal peccadilloes of the talent at, at MGM. And, you know, notoriously they covered up, you know, Clark Gable killing somebody with his car. And, uh, I mean, there are, you know, dozens of stories, you know, they're getting people abortions and they're marrying, um, closeted homosexuals off to closeted lesbians, uh, you know, so that rumors don't start and on and on and on and on. Um, and what's interesting about this is that it worked uh, because, you know, Los, a- their, uh, Los Angeles was far away from New York, which was the center of all media. Right. News didn't travel that – really didn't travel that fast. It was – you know, cost a lot of money to make continental phone calls and, you know, telegraphs. And so you could actually bury a story if you had a corrupt DA and a corrupt police department, which which LA did for, you know, many decades. So – um you know, this has always been the case in show business. It has always been the case that there's something about the kind of people who, who excel in it and who are attracted to it and all of that, where uh, because they have the money and the means and the ability uh, that other people may not, that they just they just go crazy, they go hog wild, they misbehave, they do crazy things. And there was this cleanup squad in the old studio days. And now there is no cleanup squad. No, right? what's, what's, there's what's not, no. you go out on the street if you're somebody yeah. and you're not wearing your makeup and somebody takes, uh, no. you know, a, a photo of you and you can sell it for $10,000 to Paris Hilton and Paris Hilton will put it up and make, you know, you're some celebrity. So, you know, you have to, you can't even go out to get a cup what, of what's, coffee. What, what's interesting is that the, the adversarial relationship with the press in right now in Hollywood, well, not the press so much, but so tabloidy kind of TMZ style press is pretty strong. I mean, it's weird. It, it, it's a weird world. You go out to dinner here, and you walk out of dinner, and there are dudes standing on the curb or uh, sometimes in cars across the street, and 
um, with with you know giant telephoto lenses and stuff, and it's 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 weird, and you get a sense of how how strangely adversarial that that relationship must be, and that's that's the way the press is in Hollywood right now. And and you're right, back in the old days, there was very cozy, and in fact, the press felt like another another arm of the studios. But if, when I talk about politics, you go to go to Washington D.C. right now. It's the other way around. It's like the old Hollywood press when they're writing about this president. It's fawning and controlled, and the big studio, which is the, the White House, sort of lets them know what they're supposed to say. And not in just fact, that, not keeps just all the, the bad House. news away. It keeps all the yeah, bad so news away, right? I, so, I got a perfect listen, example not, of this. Yeah, got, so last night, um, uh, for reasons I guess having to do with original sin, I watched NBC Nightly News, and um, which because I do pre- every now and then. In a just, previous life, you must have you know burned down an orphanage, and this is where <laughs> um, uh, and. Uh, they had a piece, uh, you know, uh, Alana Goodman uh, at the Washington Free Beacon was the first person to go and do this deep dive into these archives about Hillary Clinton. Right. Oh, um, right, right, you know, right. From this friend of Hillary's, right, who died in 2000. And, but she kept copious notes of her entire relationship with Hillary. And, um, and there's all sorts of juicy, interesting stuff in there. And um, that's fine. And NBC report, Andrea Mitchell, you know, who, it it is an obsession of mine that she is the chief foreign affairs correspondent for NBC Nightly News, and she spends I would say sixty percent of her time defending Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and and attacking Sarah Palin as if you know this is in her on her beat. Um, but anyway, so she does this piece on the story la- on 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 the story based on the story last night, and uh, she can't even say the words Washington Free Beacon. She has to say these revelations made on an anti-Clinton website, um, right. and the whole thing was done as this completely unfair attack on this poor woman. Never mind that she's the the most front runnery of all front runners in the history of presidential politics, maybe, um, and she's the undisputed front runner of the Democratic Party, and they can't even bring themselves to mention the publication that published it and they re- they treat it as if this was some incredible invasion of privacy um right. and it was pure praetorian guard action at its yeah. finest now what's interesting about this is that uh in alana goodman's story um there is you know there's no like smoking gun where she says i did it i did it you know I killed the kids at the Mina airstrip. <laughs> yeah, right, you know, there's right, nothing right, like right. that. Yeah. What there is is the is this detail of a conversation awesome, that Hillary I know that Hillary had with this woman Diane Blair in September of 1998 about Bill's affair with Monica, whom she refers to as a narcissistic looney tune. This you know somebody who was 22 years old and was being hit on by the president. 21 years old being hit on by the president of the United States. And her, the fact that she gave in to him and fell in love with him is somehow mar- a, a, a mark of her being a narcissistic looney tune, which is itself extremely unattractive. But, but she goes through this extremely elaborate and very, very serious defense of Bill Clinton and the reasons that he might have had this affair. This is Hillary explaining to Diane Blair why it was understandable and maybe it was partially her fault because she didn't understand how stressed he was and all of that. And it is for anybody who is interested in late 20th century history, I'm sorry, this is an extraordinarily revelatory 
piece of information because we now have some sense from it the answer to this question that has bedeviled people who are fascinated by the Clintons, who were, of course, the most powerful people in America just 15 years ago, which is what gives? Why did she stay with him? Why did she accept this kind of humiliation? What was going on? And the answer is that they were clearly involved in some very complicated, you know, deep psychological relationship in which he got to do anything he wanted and she figured out ways to excuse it away. And that may not be a political revelation and it may not be a substantive revelation involving 2016, but it is an answer to the question that the entire country was forced to wrestle with for a year. It's and not, and also, that is, there, not it's, nothing. And it's not nothing. It's a preview of coming attractions. The, 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 the preview is, do you, do we all, I mean, do we all want to once again, ha- be forced by this weird couple to go through one more time, the pretense that they're, in love, and the strange thing about that's, that's why I love this way. It is the Hollywood press where we have a sham marriage that they are presenting. Andrea Mitchell is presenting as a happy marriage, and we're all supposed to say, "Yeah, yeah, they're yeah." Like the pictures in the Hollywood in the Hollywood yeah. uh, movie magazine of Bill and Hillary Clinton around the fire, and and she's playing the piano, and they're singing, and their kids. It's, it's like mommy dearest. Yeah. And we're all the way, and we're, we're the now, kids. Yeah, we are now in the just to make this clear, we are now in the fifteenth year of their separation. Yeah. They no, they no, no, have yes. not lived together for fifteen years. Remember, she was Secretary of State for eight years, or not? I mean, she was Secretary of State for, for six years. She was a senator, right, right? For eight, she lived in a house in Washington. He could have lived in a house in Washington. He didn't live in the house in Washington. He lived in the house. In Westchester or on a plane or on Ron Burkle's plane or wherever the heck he wanted to live. And what happens on Ron Burkle's plane stays on Ron Burkle's plane. Wherever he was living, he was not living with his wife. What I think is amazing about it is that – and then – And maybe we could hope that he won't live with his wife when she becomes president because if he's somewhere else. And no one says anything about it. We all – we're supposed to – like the little peons that we are, we're supposed to accept – from the Andrea Mitchells of the world, their version of this, uh, their, ver- their, their, their sort of Hollywood sanitized Hedda Hopper version of their life because they have selected her for us and they have decided in the studio world that no, no, this is the, this is the image we're going to – we're going to – this is the image that we're going to um, put out there for our, our biggest star and she's our by, biggest by star. The way- by the way, the the extreme injustice of of the characterization of Alana's article, it it isn't salacious. I mean, this is a it's about a four thousand word piece. It's very fair. It makes no it, it raises no false charges. It does not assert summary. anything. It is a it is a very well wrought summary of what is in these papers. Yeah, no, but now, I mean, Andrew Mitchell made it sound as if taking. As if writing up the interesting bits was unfair. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah, Like it is for them. Remember, a journalist has taken the interesting bits and told them to the readers, you know? But you know, there's Uh, a – Because if Alana were working for Politico and it was in Politico magazine and the exact same article appeared in Politico magazine, it would be like – 
in a dazzling analysis of yeah. blah blah. Or you know, if Ryan Lizza wrote it in the New Yorker or something like that, that would be fine. Down. Here's the cut down. Here's the- that would be totally fine, you know, because it really gives you a full blooded picture right. of a very complex woman and the but, decisions but she had to it's make. It's funny though how this stuff works. One thing, I'm sorry, right. but one thing about 2016 that I well maybe there are other things, but one thing that sort of stuck out to me, um, which you know, one of the things I'm sort of fascinated by is why is how everybody in the Democratic Party is basically lining up around Hillary when it seems to me she is so open for an attack from the left. And the one thing in there that really sort of speaks to that was her reaction to the Bob Packwood stuff, where she dismisses all of the feminist groups essentially whining about Bob Packwood's womanizing and sexual harassment because she needs his vote and his help to get Hillary care passed. And this is Robert Peckwood, the Republican senator from Oregon, who was right. forced out of office because of these charges that he had molested women in his office and lobbyists. And very he had a things. habit of going up to rant, sort of like that mayor from San Diego and just randomly shoving his tongue down people's throats. And it was a huge deal back then. I mean, a huge deal. Huge. Um, it was the number one feminist concern for a while. And now all of those feminist groups are lining around Hillary. And one of the things that comes through about Hillary in that thing is she actually doesn't have a lot of use for feminist groups and doesn't have a lot of use, right. use the party line of, of, of sort of feminism. And if there was somebody with an appetite um, and some ambition, they could use some of that very effectively against Hillary to at least embarrass a lot of people on the left. And it just sort of falls by the wayside. You know, um, I thought it was interesting. Now, speaking of the left, speaking of the left and uh, and the history of the left in the 20th century, uh, it's now time to tell everybody that this week, Glob Culture is sponsored by Encounter Books. And this week's pick is Fred Siegel's extraordinary book, The Revolt Against the Masses, How Liberalism Has Undermined the Middle Class. Uh, This is a book that's very near and dear to my heart because I published two uh, chapters of it in chrysalis form in commentary over the last three or four years. Um, And it is a a remarkable piece of work. It rewrites the history of modern liberalism. It shows that what we think of as liberalism, the top and bottom coalition we associate with President Obama, began not with progressivism or the New Deal, but rather in the wake of World War I in disillusionment with American society. In the 1920s, the first thinkers to call themselves liberals adopted the hostility to bourgeois life that had long characterized European intellectuals of both the left and right. The aim of liberalism's founders, men like Herbert Crowley, Robert Randolph Byrne, H.G. Wells, Sinclair Lewis, and H.L. Mencken, was to create an American version of the aristocracy long associated with European statism, critical of mass democracy and middle-class capitalism. Liberals despised the businessman's pursuit of profit as well as the conventional individual's pursuit of pleasure. And in the 1950s, liberalism expressed itself again in a scornful critique of popular culture. It was precisely the success of a recently elevated middle-class culture that frightened the leaders of the new class who took up the priestly task of de-democratizing America in the name of administering newly developed rights. Today's brand of liberalism led by Barack Obama has displaced the old Main Street private sector middle class with a new middle class composed of public sector workers allied allied with crony capitalists and the country's arbiters of elite style and taste. This is a very original book. It is a remarkable analysis. 
there. It's eye-opening on almost every page. And for 15% off the price of this book and any other title, go to EncounterBooks.com and use the coupon code RICOCHET at checkout. We thank our friends at Encounter Books for sponsoring the Glop Culture podcast. And this really is, this really is one, of the, one of the more striking pieces of, of, of analysis of mm-hmm. the development of the liberal mind. One of the most original since liberal fascism, in fact, by, by Jonah Goldberg. So really, I strongly uh, recommend it to everybody. And I also strongly recommend uh, True Detective – on, on HBO. Oh, really? Are you guys watching True Detective? I am not, but I, I have them all on my uh, TiVo-y thing, and I'm, I'm thinking about it, but I'm not I'm not there yet. Yeah, my wife is and I are saving them up. We're, we it, needed a new show. How, how violent is it? Is it really violent? Do I want – I mean, is it all – it, look, it looks kind not, of scary and people it's, yell. It's, it is, it is uh, brooding. It is quite humorless. It is very dark. Oh, so um, sign me up. Everything you just said sounds fantastic. Very, very dark. Um, it is not so – it's, it's the John Carey of cable shows? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, Brooding, no, humorless, and dark? <laughs> but first of all, it has a very inventive structure because what's going on simultaneously is you are watching the uh, unfolding investigation of a case in Louisiana in the year 1997. And then you flash forward pretty much to the present day as the two cops – who investigated this very lurid series of serial uh, killings uh, are being uh, interrogated again 15 years later uh, because though they claim to have closed the case, the crimes are beginning again. And uh, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson play the two detectives. And though I am not – I am – in the minority over the last couple of years in finding the renaissance of Matthew McConaughey's career. Uh, I have not liked, did not like his performance in Magic Mike, which a lot of people liked. I did not like him in The Wolf on Wall Street. I think he overacts. This is an astoundingly good performance that he is playing as a, as a very complicated, uh, you know, local detective who it turns out was a was a DEA agent undercover for for several years. No, I'm not spoiling. I'm not spoiling. You know this early. I'm not spoiling anything. Uh-huh. All right. Well. Okay. Um, All right. And, well. And, and, All right. It's good. But I do want to bring one interesting aspect of it up because I think we've even talked about it before. This show, like Sons of Anarchy and Breaking Bad and Justified and uh, True Blood and all kinds of things is a portrait of life among the white trash. Yeah. And and it is an interesting thing that much like this podcast. <laughs> very much like this podcast. It is an interesting thing that the American television renaissance so much of it is taking place in sort of Hollywood diving deep into the innards of sort of forgotten of the forgotten white working class male. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't know what to make of it. Uh, you know, certainly these aren't attractive portraits of the of the white male, so it's not necessarily that shocking that 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 Hollywood liberals might be going in this direction. But these are, you know, extremely powerful pieces of work. And Jonah, I know you're you're a particular fan of Sons of Anarchy, and, mm-hmm. and which I find almost impossible to watch. There's something very Sons of Anarchy ish about about uh, True Detective, which also has motorcycle gangs and various other things in it. What do you make of this sort of, you know? 
uh, to opening the heart of America, you know, of 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 Middle and South America and Southwest America through the through the the lens of these sort of you know cr- barbaric criminal half educated. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. I mean, one of the things that was really interesting about Breaking Bad was that it was its top ten cities were um, uh, not the top ten cities for, say, Mad Men. Right? It's top. It was. It was basically a red state show, and I think one of the things. I mean, you guys know this stuff better than I do, but one of the things you sort of take from it is that if you're going to live in a balkanized 500 channel universe. Then the the biggest chunks become much more attractive markets, both artistically and sort of ratings wise. And you know this country is still seventy odd percent white, and so you can see how you know the rise of reality shows like Duck Dynasty, the success of of Breaking Bad, which is sort of set in the Southwest, uh, uh, Sons of Anarchy, which is basically set outside of right. Oakland. Um, become much more interesting fodder. Um, you know, uh, that said, you know, I, I sincerely doubt that, that the true crime guys are, are going after, um, I think that they're, they're, they're pandering to the lower income white no, market. No, I, mean, no, I think no, there's a certain amount not. of noblesse oblige involved in some of this stuff. Well, no, I'm not necessarily – look, look, people uh, upscale whites like to watch white trash. They, they like that. There's no, no – that's – that, that, that's a lot of who's watching I and mean, that's only who's watching HBO. That's premium cable. And so it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, it's like lurid, uh, you know, it, it, it fulfills that kind of lurid, you know, slow down for the traffic uh, accident feeling to it. And it's also got two movie stars in it. So it feels like high art. Um, you know, the reason Breaking Bad out draws Mad Men is because stuff happened in Breaking Bad. It was more exciting. You it was had a better to, show. Yeah, it's a better yeah, show. You have yeah. to watch it. Stuff goes on. Like you miss Breaking Bad and like exciting things occur, whereas in Mad Men, people sort of stare moodily at you know, their cocktail um, and nothing will happen. You know, Mad Men was just a lot of throat clearing. Uh, you know, look, uh, you, you're right. TV's been balkanized. So if you're uh, – if you are – if you're um, 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 the, the, the fastest growing ethnic minority, right, uh, Hispanic, you have Univision and Telemundo. Univision or Univision, that is probably the number four network now. It usually beats um, NBC in mm-hmm. primetime. And they're going to put on – and they are putting on their own programming and their programming is pretty good. It's, it's better than NBC and they are going to move – they're moving really, really aggressively into news. Um, so you'll be looking – they will they will sponsor a, a debate in 2016 it won't just be, uh, you know, Candy Crowley and uh, Andrea Mitchell and, uh, you know, Javier Jorononas. It'll be something it'll be bigger than that. Um, they have a lot of money and a lot of viewers. And, and so if you, if you are sort of a Spanish language home, you're going to watch that. Uh, and if you're African-American, you're out of luck basically because they're not – they're sort of underserved right now. Um, and that's just the way it is. So uh, everyone's chasing that um, – frankly, everyone's chasing the white demographic in television. Speaking, by the way, of, of of NBC, I saw this very interesting stat about television, about you know broadcast television, because once again we're only we're talking about cable, a lot of cable, and um, uh, a fact that I'm sure is near and dear to 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 Rob's heart. So you know there was the fall television season, uh, four networks now, yeah, um, uh, twenty three shows debuted, uh, two will survive. 
something mm-hmm. like two will survive to, to next year, uh, the right. blacklist and sleepy hollow. So basically um, the crisis in American, no, I guess, no, gonna, I guess they're going to renew that because yeah, I mean, a couple of things may, may limp because they can't, they can't simply re, you know, make another 10 new hours of television. But um, once again, uh, we see this incredible breakdown of, of uh, the process in which, you know, uh, new fare is being made in the you know along the lines of the old uh, models. And well, the, uh, the old it's model, pretty I mean, striking. The, the the actual ratio of success. I mean, the the, the problem is that it, the, the, it used to work that you make uh, X number of uh, pilots a year and you put on you know some tiny fragment of that on the new schedule on the, for all the networks, and of all the new shows, two of them. That, that's actually a pretty good ratio. Two of them are hits. Uh, um, they're you know two hits a year, maybe three hits a year tops, and that kind of is still the ratio. The problem is that now what defines um, the old days a hit was something that got a twenty five share, a show that people talked about. Um, that that hasn't happened in in a long long time, uh, in a long long time. And so now that the definition of hit is now so small that pe- people are, are are talking about hit TV shows that no one's watching. And for for cable, it's kind of okay because you're just trying to get people to know who you are. If you're trying to launch a cable or relaunch a cable channel, you know your your whatever that cable channel was before Esquire, where the Hearst people bought into it, or your um, your AMC with the American Movie Channel before they had Mad Men, and they're like, well, we got to do something. Um, you know, you're trying to get from 150 thousand viewers a night to 400 thousand viewers a night, yeah. or from 500 thousand viewers a night to 900 thousand viewers a night. All that. It, it, the numbers when they're not small, you you know you 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 swing for the fence, right? But if you are a broadcast network and you are a big stuff, it is a real problem. It is a real problem, and you are standing in front of people. Essentially, you know, I always say the same thing. The, the, I say The Walking Dead is both the biggest show in television. It is also a description for the TV business mm-hmm. because the, these people are like they're zombies. They stand there and they talk about how robust everything is. And they, they and the core of the audience is disappearing, or going somewhere else, or watching another channel, or just sort of dissipating into a lot of different little fragments. Great for people like me, in a way, and for the viewers. Terrible for the grandees and potentates and sultans and pashas who run, you know, the dozen people who used to, you know, swan around swan around television. <laughs> all right. Well, um, that's so basically, uh, yeah. it's all good news. So that's that's good news for you. It's good news for viewers. It's no, bad. It's, not, it's, it's bad. Not great it's news bad for, news. It's bad news for Robert Greenblatt. So it's all uh, yeah, fine with me. But it's also. But well, here's the thing: it's not bad news for Bob Greenblatt because he just got his contract. He's the president of entertainment at NBC, and because they're so bereft of any other options, they just renewed it. Whereas in, in, in any other business, they would have said, you know, thank you for your service, but uh, we, we we simply can't have another point six. Meaning six hundred thousand people in the demographic watching prime time NBC anymore. We simply can't have that. So, um, <laughs> I mean, which is which is astonishing. I mean, it does remind me a little bit of of this kind of under news, where uh, a little bit like the, what we talked about with the Clintons, a little bit like the old Hollywood, where everybody knows the truth, kind of, but we all pretend that it's not. And we, if, if we all, if no one says anything, that maybe it'll be true again. Uh, so if, if we all just say, oh, you know, the, the, the Bill and Hillary are just so busy. They just don't have time. They're so busy. <laughs> there, there wasn't actually a piece in, in I don't think the New York Times or New Yorker profile saying that they, you know, they're just so busy. They found, they discovered they were both in, in, um, in Brazil, in, in, in Sao Paulo at, on the same day. 
And they were going to – and they just didn't have time. They're, the entourages were just too – it's too complicated for them to have dinner together. Really? <laughs> what? It's just, it's just beyond all. And, it's beyond all. Time, named Father of the Year like what, last year, two years ago? <laughs> yeah. And, and, we, <laughs> and we all accept that in the same way I think people in, in Hollywood, especially Hollywood, accept the fact that uh, – accept that, oh, no, things are fine. Things are, re- things are good. We're going to have pilot season and we're going to spend money and it's, things are good. And, and you remember, not. you remember there was this detail during the 1992 campaign. Speaking of fathers of the year, where God, I'm sorry, where, I'm, I'm, where I'm not to bring us back to that, but, but where okay. Stephanopoulos and and other retailed the following story that that Bill was such a good father to Chelsea that he was having her fax her homework to the plane so that he could correct it and send it back to her. Now, I will now say because it is 20 years later, that this was the biggest load of bull crap the world has ever seen. He was having her fax her homework. This never happened. This, this is all part of this desperate effort to invent a bourgeois domesticity for Bill Clinton that he did not experience and did not have. And this the mythologizing of Bill Clinton in response to the, you know, uh, the the sort of leak of little revelations about him and and his and his misconduct and the fact that people all of whom knew better simply retailed that information as though it were true when they had every when if anybody else yeah. had told them they would say oh you know the famous oh cynical press the cynical yeah. media were so cynical you know we uh, we but you know all we like is a good story. Well, how about when it's a bad story and a and a nonsense story, and you should really take it and shred it and show everybody that but, it's a nonsense. Here's the problem: to go back to my to my earlier comparison between the Hollywood press Hollywood sort of press relations PR machine in the 30s and 40s and 50s, and the Washington PR machine back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, everybody knew that they were. Lying and massaging and trying to create a false impression. Everybody knew that the star was crazy and a secret drinker. Everybody knew that Rock Hudson uh, was not really married. Everybody knew that. Everybody knew the score. They were creating an image and, and they, they knew what they were doing. Nobody was saying the, – the, 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 the PR people, the columnists, the, 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 the movie magazine editors, no one was duped or was trying or was duping themselves. Whereas if you, if you hooked Andrea Mitchell up to a lie detector, she really doesn't think that what was in the Washington Free Beacon is relevant. So why did she do the story? So why did she agree to do the story? Why was she the you know, reporter Because she's, she's 900 years old and it probably came out and she's got to cover it in some way. No, she I bet really you what it was, was that they knew that she knew that NBC was going to cover it, and she said, "Let me yeah. do it, so it'll be safe." Yeah, but she, but she, but she, but she's a true believer. That's the thing. These these guys are actually eating their own dog food. That's I, I, you, know, right, so you know, I, 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 I just want to say I am appalled at your suggestion that Andrea Mitchell <laughs> is not a straight shooter. Andrea Mitchell has won the Weems Galaxkovo Prize for straight shooting at the White House <laughs> Correspondents' Dinner eight hundred years in a row now. All right, so and you dare. I, I dare and I deign to impugn. Okay, yeah. so I am um, impugnation I, is 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 unacceptable. That's I was so I was so offended by John's story about faxing the homework, not because um, uh, I don't share his cynicism, but because he gave the label of the bill, biggest load of bullcrap when in fact it comes in second to my story. 
Um, I went and Googled, because I remember I wrote this piece in 1999, June 4, 1999 for National Review, about James Bennett's profile of Hillary Clinton, where he meets her in the solarium in the White House. And I'm I'm looking at the story right now. And the place was stage set for uh, a, you know, a, a perfect scene of maternal familial life where there was a dog-eared copy of the um, word game Boggle on the table and a huge collection of Beanie Babies. Now, Beanie Babies were – this has driven me crazy ever since – Chelsea Clinton was in was at was in her second year of Stanford at the time, and the idea that the White House had her Beanie Baby collection it just happened to be out in this room was such nonsense. And I've been convinced <laughs> from the beginning that they went out and bought a pile of Beanie oh, Babies yeah. and just arranged them. And and there's no way that James Bennett, who's a serious reporter, bought any of this, but he just simply agreed to convey it to the reader. As if it was a, a, a real thing and not a completely Potemkin snapshot of a family life. Right. I, I once had a meeting with a, a, an, uh, an actor, writer, sort of, I won't tell you who he is, very famous guy, a very, very well known man, um, kind of pompous, thinks of himself as an intellectual. Uh, and um, we were, he, he, it turns out that he, his family and my family, we, we went to the same place in December um, uh, for a Christmas holidays. And uh, and we were going to meet in, in in L.A., but because we were both there, we decided we were going to um, we we're going to have lunch together in this place, and so sort of beach area. So I'm sort of we agree to meet in the beachfront uh, little uh, cafe, and I'm there a little early, and I'm reading my beach book, which is which was uh, the Ottoman Centuries by Lord Kinross, right? This obscure history, not obscure, but a big fat fat history of the Ottoman. And uh, and so we, we he comes up we meet we have to shake hands like he was it, he was planning to read it it was something <laughs> it was the most <laughs> gratuitously sort of pompous thing to do like oh you know yeah oh yeah how is that yeah like we're gonna talk about the Ottoman Empire now no it, people I mean I get that people do that to themselves and I get that people uh, have PR flacks that do it and I get that there you you hire people to massage that message to you but what I find so amazing is that I'm not sure that people in um, in the, the Washington press corps, I'm not sure that they're as sophisticated or as smart as the tabloid reporters at TMZ who I, know. Look, I, I find that I find that entirely plausible. For one thing, the tabloid reporters at you know now increasingly, by the way, reporters in Washington, including Alana Goodman, who used to work for me, are very young and they're very you know and they 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 have much less experience. You know, it used to be you ended up in Washington as a sort of you know, reporter at the White House after, you know, 15 years of dogged reporting and state houses and local and this and that. And now basically you're 25, 26, 27 years old and you went to Harvard and you're pretty and you're, you, 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 you know, you, you had a blog and now you're like recovering the White House. And so, uh, the, the, the extent of their experience and also the extent of their, the cynicism that is appropriate when dealing with politicians of any level has actually not necessarily been learned because, you know, one good thing about being a local reporter and a statehouse reporter is you discover just, you know, you see the sausage being made at the sausage factory uh, from a very early age and you really learn, you know, you really, really learn how uh, uh, how gross it can be. And, you know, uh, these are people who not only haven't they spent much time, but, you know, they, they don't even know if you ask them how does a bill become law, they couldn't even explain it to you. So – 
We have time for one last uh, segment before we before we go, and I'm wondering whether um, anybody uh, wishes to uh, uh, giggle and snort and uh, and and have a have a big <laughs> whoop de doo over um, over the fact that uh, uh, yesterday, out of nowhere, just a week after the Congressional Budget Office uh, let everybody know that Obamacare featured incentives that would cause. Uh, the equivalent of two million people to drop out of the workforce rather than lose their benefits by the year 2024, uh, that suddenly and mysteriously the uh, employer uh, mandate uh, for Obamacare for firms between uh, 50 and 99 employees has mysteriously once again been postponed for a year, magically. The the magic fairy dust has been sprinkled over – uh, you know, over uh, tens of millions of employers, and they no longer have to. Uh, they no longer have to uh, 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 function under the employer mandate. Um, uh, and uh, you know, this is a, a occasion for deep cynicism and study. And yeah, uh, but it's also, I think, a time for gloating and and hilarity. Well, I, 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 I gl- gloating and hilarity, but also maybe a little, a, a kind, tiny little bit of revolution. What on earth? Did the Supreme Court uphold then, if not a law? I mean, uh, the president gets to rewrite the law? Well, it's a tax, you see. Yeah. So as a tax, the Secretary of the Treasury – Every other day. (laughs) Right. So (laughs) the Secretary of the Treasury theoretically has latitude to postpone and do various other things with Uh taxes because remember, it's now a tax, not a penalty. Mm. Originally, it was a penalty. If it had been a penalty – uh, it would have been unconstitutional, but as a tax, it's not unconstitutional. So now it's a tax, so they can say, "Okay, well, it's a tax, so we can postpone the tax." See, it would help so much more if you could do a good John Candy impersonation, explaining why he gets the top bunk because he's in Italy. <laughs> yeah, in stripes. Yeah. You know, oh, if, right. If we had been in Germany, you know, totally, totally different, totally different, totally different story. It is, it is you know, it's, the thing I keep going back to, and the thing that any fair historian will dedicate vast swaths of schadenfreude and irony on is that in October, in October, the forget the mainstream media parroting this stuff, the very the, the top ranking officials in America, the Senate majority leader, the White House spokesman, various and sundry politicians across this country insisted that it was racist, that it was extremist. You were an anarchist. If you even talked about delaying Obamacare, that the the mere suggestion of doing so meant that you didn't respect the rule of law. Last night I found a thing on Twitter where there was some guy – I mean admittedly it was at Daily Cost, so you can only take it so seriously. But there was a guy talking about how the – we should be using – that Obama should be using the anti-sedition laws (laughs) against any Republican – who talks about not implementing Obamacare on time. And, uh, you know, when Ted Cruz tweeted that thing, um, you know, about Obamacare in three words, you know, it's a train wreck or whatever, Obama took to Twitter and wrote with a period after each word, it, it, it's, it's the law. Oh, right, it's the law. You know, and they all talked about this, and everyone at the New York Times shared their dudgeon about it. And now, every, you know, it's like every third piece of this monstrosity is being delayed or kicked aside, and Obama could have so easily taken up the called the Republicans bluff, given them the delays that they wanted, then blamed them 
blamed Republicans for not giving people the ideal the idealized version of Obamacare. But instead, he was so ignorant about how his own signature achievement right. was being implemented that he didn't do it. And so, I, it's you know, the Schadenfreude is their tears are delicious. It's I mean, not. It's not. It's not. I, only- I, I would like to see. I want that all compiled, though. I mean, I'm. I'm. I'm I saw all those people were tweeting that yesterday. The it's the law. The fr- and then when it was upheld. It's the law again and all that sort of preening and, and swanning around, all that, which I loved, right? And I, I want all compiled in one, like a handy downloadable PDF that I can print oh, out. Oh, you'll listen. Everyone's better. Uh, predictions. It's even better than that because you may recall that there was a vote cast that was never going to carry in the Senate for, um, uh, for a delay. Uh, of the uh, particularly of this mandate or the employer mandate for a year in the in the Senate, there was going to be a vote, and it was insisted there were there are three red state uh, Democratic senators who are in deep trouble. Right? I mean, I can't name them. Right? Mary Landrieu is one of them. Uh, Pryor Kay and uh, K. Hagan and Pryor. Those are the yeah. three. They weren't even allowed by Harry Reid to cast a you know a sort of pointless vote for delay so that they could be on record saying they wanted this delay. It was necessary for, in the politics of the moment for all Democrats to remain a solid force saying that there would be no delay and they were not allowed to vote against the delay. And now it's February and the administration is delaying. Maybe it's delaying to help them out of some misguided uh, fantasy that uh, delaying implementation will somehow allow them to escape the wrath of voters who will now hear for nine months, they, you know, it's coming in 2015 unless you vote for so-and-so. Right, right. You know. Exactly, right. You, ha- you had a taste of, I mean, that, that, it's, a har- it's a fish hook now for them. It's like you had this horrible situation. Everyone's had a glimpse of it at its worst. And now they're going to delay it so you have time to rethink it. It's really not very – it's terrible politics. And besides and, – and, and the, other, the other thing is that you know, last week, again, the way they hang people out to dry. So this report comes out from the Congressional Budget Office, which is terrible news for Obama that says that there is going to be this you know, deleterious uh, you know, um, uh, welfare effect, uh, effect of, of Obamacare on, you know, on, on jobs at the margins. And – Obama dutifully trots out and, and his, and his pangendrums and slavies in the press come out and say, he's right. And this is really, you know, we're going to liberate people from more people who are trapped at work, job lock, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Right. And it's what, what's more, it's good. It's all good. It's really wonderful. It's wonderful. It's so good. So what do they do a week later? They postpone the bill for a year. Because it's so good. It's so good. We so want they basically, gratification. They basically shove everybody out saying, say it's good, say it's good, say it's good, say it's good. And then a week later, they, they sneak out the back door and say we're postponing it for a year. Well, you know when you get a, a I bowl mean, they of nuts. Keep, all they do is pull – You know, they're like loosely with the football over and over and over again with these you know, slavish you know, camp followers. Because they'll do what they have to do, and what, whatever whatever you made somebody do a week ago is, is is no longer operational. And you know, luckily for them, they don't need this loyalty for much longer. Because uh, you know, you can't you can't play people this way. Sure, you can in your own party. You can, 
you can until they really decide they can't get they can't who's, take it. Who's going to so, be the first? Who who will be the first? And, and you can include senators in tight races. Okay. Who who in the press? So so not not nobody with a with a with a race to win. Who in the press is going to be the first? Who's going to be the first official acolyte to turn? Well, I'm not sure he qualifies as an acolyte, but it's Ron Fournier, who I have mixed yeah. feelings about. But he has a piece up today saying how, you know, it's really getting hard to defend Obamacare. Yeah. Um, yeah. A good so that, yeah, he's, and, and <laughs> I'm, he's, I'm, I'm trying as hard as I can, but it's hard. Yeah. I want to look credit exactly. here. Yeah. So listen, guys, we have to we have to wrap this up. So uh, I'm sure Jonas is uh, Jonah. Jonas. Who's Jonas? Uh, the I, Jonas. I, all brothers. my life. People been as far as Jonas. I know, the Jonas brothers uh, have not don't have a pet monkey and they're fine. No. Um but uh, Jonah, I'm sure you have some gig you need to uh, you need to tell everybody about. Yeah, I, I don't know when the next time we'll be recording, so I might as well get a couple out of the way. On February 25, I'm going to speak at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Should be exciting because I'm coming. I'm following on the invitation from our friend Steve Hayward, oh, yeah. who is the uh, professor the of conservatism, right wing. Yeah, the professor of tokenism. Yeah. at uh, Boulder. Um, yes. And so uh, that should be open to the public. I, do, I don't have details on when and where, but it should be findable soon. And uh, I will be speaking at the Leadership Institute of the Rockies. You can Google that. I will be speaking at a Hillsdale event in Phoenix. You can Google that. And uh, that's about it for right now. Rob? I got nothing. Rob's got nothing. And I have, I have, I have uh, almost nothing. Except for the, of course, the uh, mandatory uh, appearance with Gallagher, um, I will be the watermelon uh, <laughs> at uh, at Chuckles in, in West Nyack, New York. So, gentlemen, uh, another wonderful podcast. Uh, I'm guessing Twelve Years a Slave is the best picture, uh, but I'm oh, okay. often wrong. Uh, and uh, uh, if anybody wants to disagree with me, um, Gravity. Okay, we got twelve. Really? We, got, we got we got we got heavy and light. And Jonah, you anywhere? Uh, uh, I haven't seen Twelve Years a Slave, but it feels like it's going to get it to me too. I guess. All right. So, uh, thanks very much, and we will uh, we will talk to you again. Fellas, see you soon. Bye. Bye. You know that song, don't you? Sure, I do. Well, then sing it. Come on, come on, Johnny. I want to make some noise with real life aeroplanes. Someday I'm going to fly. I'll be a pilot too. And when I do, how would you like to be my crew? On the good ship, lollipop, it's a sweet trip to a candy shop where bonbons play on the sunny beach in Peppermint Bay. Lemonade stands everywhere, cracker jack bands fill the air, and there you are, happy landing on a chocolate bar. Sugar bowl, do the tootsie roll with the big bad devil's food cake. 
Conversation. And there you are, happy landing on a chocolate bar. See the sugar bowl, do the tootsie roll with the big fat devil's food cake. If you eat too much, oh, oh, 